welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast, Major League Baseball Amateur Draft Edition 2020. Very much looking forward to this conversation. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, along with us, as well as Jeff Ellis. He is our draft expert today. You can follow him on Twitter at JeffMLBDraft. He's the host of Locked On Indians Podcast. You can find his work on MLBDraftNow.blogspot.com. Jeff, you know... You follow the Indians pretty closely, but we, we felt like it was appropriate to have you on the podcast today because our White Sox are picking at number 11, and you have a pretty good understanding of the draft class as well as what the division is looking to do. So we're happy to have you on despite your affiliation. No, I understand. Uh, you know, the White Sox are definitely a team where uh, I appreciate them because often our boards match up. We tend to scout various ways, and I do have the whole thing where like the last two years, I successfully predicted the White Sox pick in September. So I now have that pressure to see if I can do it for a third year in a row when it isn't uh, a super high selection. Okay. All right. Uh, boy, I don't know if I want to ask you now or we can, well, let's wait, let's wait. We'll get to that in a little bit. So I don't want to jump the gun. We have plenty of t- uh, topics to talk about here. First, let me ask you about the new format in 2020. It's so curious to see how it's going to translate moving forward over the next few years immediately but how about this year what are your general thoughts about the five round draft and how does this affect teams across the american league central like the white Sox or or like the detroit tigers who or or kansas city royals who are in the midst of a rebuild well i mean i personally hate it uh the five rounds just cuts down on chances and opportunities and i think specifically when you're looking at the royals and the tigers one of the best things about being a bad team is having that giant pool of draft pick capital and money and being able to go back and steal multiple high picks later in the draft by using that pool wisely. I mean, often you can get um, like a second or third round talent on day three if you've uh, juggled it well and you can come back firing. And yes, they can maybe just fire on all five of their picks now, but uh, you know, not all players are high picks there's going to be guys that uh, scouts liked who are going to slip through the cracks. And, you know, for teams, you know, the, the Indians have the extra pick this year with the competitive balance and the White Sox have a relatively high pick. So I, for, in general, maybe outside the twins, it's uh, a really bad scenario, I think, for the other four teams in the division. So just looking overall, I mean, obviously, like another division team. The Tigers are picking number one overall. You know, everybody seems to think they're zeroed in on Spencer Torkelson there. Um, outside of that, how do you how do you see like the top five playing out right now? Is it still you know college heavy as usual? Uh, I think more so than normal. We will probably see college heavy. Um, this is a draft that is the single greatest draft in terms of college arms I've ever seen, and it's not even close. And that comes on the the heels of last year's class being maybe the worst draft for college arms. So teams that skipped out or missed last year have this opportunity to double or triple down this year. And then it's just those guys have the most tape, the most video. So you just have a, a better chance to scout and see them. And when you only have five selections, teams might be a little more cautious. So it is definitely going to be interesting to see. A lot of mocks seem to be very college bat heavy in particular early on. And that class, I don't know if it necessarily feels light, but there's not a ton of depth in it. So I can understand why, you know, you go get your college bat early if there's someone you like, and then you know that you can fire back and probably get a really strong 
arm, either prep or college, because the prep arms do seem to be sliding or because of the college depth in round two, in round three, maybe even in round four or five. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the interesting storylines there is Baltimore too, obviously. You know, I think, look, like if it's Wednesday night and they take Austin Martin, like nobody's going to be surprised by that. But, I mean, you have the Boris factor there, and you also have they pick at 30 and 39. So I would think that they'd want to go bad at two if they could because you can get pitching at 30 and 39 in a class this deep, like you said. So what are you thinking there? Do you think that's you think that's Martin, or do you think it might be Lacey? Uh, I, I, I'm probably leaning Martin. I would not be shocked if they decided to go with, with Gonzalez. I know he's sliding a bit in places, but I think in some regard, the upside to him sliding is he might be a little bit cheaper than teams were anticipating a month ago. Cause all of a sudden he's not necessarily, it's no longer a big four in most places back in March, back in February, when games were being played, it was always described as a big four. Now it's a big three. And if it is described as a big four, it's often Zach Bean and not uh, Nick Gonzalez. So I am curious to see what he is going to cost. Uh, he could be an interesting talent, clearly a guy who's a, I don't think he's worse than six on anyone's board, but could end up being cheaper than those other names we talked about. But I think it makes the most sense to definitely go bat there and then come back and see what prep arm is slid. Is there's going to be probably a surprising name uh, amongst the prep hitters or the uh, the prep pitchers at 30. And then 39, you're still going to get, uh, you know, I could see someone like C.J. Van Eyck, who's at first round talk, or Chris McMahon still available at that pick. So there's a lot of ways to go. And having those high picks just, it sets them up for a, an interesting draft, and they can kind of own this draft and manipulate it to suit them. Jeff, I want to talk about your Indians real quick. And before I get to the draft, I want to ask your take on where the big league club is or where the organization stands right now within their farm system. How do you feel about their depth? as well as how do you feel about where the big league club is currently in terms of competing in the American League Central? I still think they're a a strong team. They have enough pieces to be in competition. It's not like it was a few years ago where you're going to just sit back and think you you definitely are going to be in the playoffs. The Miners have a a lot of interesting pieces uh, in terms of, I mean, I'm a big Nolan Jones guy. I'm not so big on some of their other prospects. A lot of times I find it interesting because they were kind of either listed like somewhere between nine to like 13 in a lot of places in the best minor leagues in baseball and they have depth for days but my concern with that depth is it's a lot of like a ball rookie ball and a lot of you know sifting gets done as you move up the ranks so whenever i see a a minor league list that is so heavy and you know based on those lower minors guys no matter the talent we've all seen very talented guys in the lower minors flame out it just happens so that is my concern with the overall minors is it's definitely lower minors heavy. I still trust the front office and what they've done there over the years. I think they do a great job scouting and developing. They've been uh, fantastic the past few seasons. The ownership situation is a bit of a disaster. Um, when John Sherman sold his minor- minority stake in the Indians to go buy the Royals, uh, that's when we started to see the Indians cutting salary left and right. And that's what it has been the last two years instead of a team that uh, took advantage of the best pitching staff they've had since the 1950s. They spent the last two years trying to uh, to get that payroll down uh, to smaller and smaller numbers. And it's as a fan of them, it's unfortunate to see. But uh, I, it, on the outside, I would say it looks like it's a if we get baseball this year, whatever version we get, it's going to be a, a three dog fight in the central. And I don't think anyone really feels confident putting any of those teams head or shoulders above anyone else. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good evaluation. I agree with a lot of what you said. And, of course, you know, being so locked in with, with Cleveland, that was what was so intriguing to me was the the ownership group and the way they're maneuvering around their franchise right now. Uh, one guy in particular, you mentioned Nolan Jones. I like him as well. Big fan. Uh, what about Brian Rocchio? Do you know anything about him, the shortstop, uh, 19 years old, switch hitter? Yeah, I've, uh, I'll be honest. I've been a bit lower on him than the field. Um, he was not in my top 11 or so prospects. There's a lot of really good tools, and he performed well, but he didn't light the world on fire. Yes, he was very young for the level, um, and his, uh, his runs created plus were above league average. So there's a lot of potential, a lot of tools. I think he's far out. Uh, he's going to take, you know, three to four years more before he's major league ready. And I get all the tools, but I, I just always get concerned when, as a someone who has written about the minors more than I probably should, uh, we get too caught up in the, the, the guys in A and rookie ball. I've just seen such a, a flame out right over the years from can't miss or, you know, top three guys that when I... I look at someone like, a, um, you know, there's George Valera, who I did rank highly because he got a little higher in the minors and we saw some other skills pop up. But uh, with Rokoyo, it's he didn't he had OK stuff across the board. But I mean, I, I'm very stat heavy. And again, the production was not bad, especially for his age at that level. But he didn't have anything that popped. None of the areas I looked at um, in normal or advanced stats showed me someone where I go, ooh, I got to make sure to catch more of him. Like there were some other guys down there that I was more intrigued to watch. I could very easily be proven wrong, and I often am, but uh, I liked him. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely the low guy on him. Yeah, I hear you. You know, there's a lot of development that needs to be done for those young players, and it's an unknown once you get to professional baseball. So let's get to the pick. Cleveland's at 23. Where do you prefer that they go? Pitcher, prep arm, college bat? What do you think? Uh, it, for me, it's just whoever has slid. I'd love to see, you know, there's always someone who slides on draft day. There's always an interesting name or two that you're like, wow, how are they still there? And I hope they get someone, uh, you know, there's, there's last year, I thought Josh Jung, for instance, when he kind of flew up to the top 10 that pushed talent further down the board, uh, for a lot of teams. And there were players there that, uh, I didn't think we always expected to be there. Um, I go back two years ago when someone like Bryce Terang or Trevor Larnock, uh, fell and I thought they were both uh, like top 12 talents. So I'm not so much uh, focused on hitter or, you know, uh, where they play. It's just whatever the top talent is based on my board. I mean, I would probably hope that uh, maybe one of the college pitchers I like a little bit more than the field uh, slides down um, or a prep arm. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly becoming convinced that prep arms, uh, are the better value than the prep hitter. Uh, I just, I did some minor stuff and it's like the risk is about equal, but the, you know, the uh, getting the high ceiling talent you tend to get with the prep arm, whereas you can get the high ceiling talent with uh, college players and even later in the draft, because we don't do a good job of evaluating uh, player hit ability is, is a very clear thing over the years. Yeah. So Jeff, can you elaborate a little bit just on Cleveland's model? I think a lot of people just assume that Cleveland, you know, that they're just looking for young players, but it's, you know, it's not that simple. They're a model team. They, you know, they factor birthdays very heavily, but they also, if I'm not mistaken, they're a team that relies a lot on Cape Cod success too. Like if they were to take a college player. So I guess just 
if somebody were like trying to predict like what the Indians might do, what are some of those things that they look for when drafting? The, the age thing always comes up. And what I, the thing with that I always tell people is it's, it's age relative to class. So honestly, they probably won't draft draft eligible sophomores just because compared to their class, the reason they're draft eligible is they're old sophomores. So it's, it's not always about like, Oh, he's 20 on draft day. It's more like, yeah, 17 year old is a 17 year old. That's, that's going to hold through, but always looking at age relative to draft class. Um, another model thing for them is low strikeout percentage, which I know is actually a model with the white Sox as well. And something we've seen over the years with both teams. So you're looking at guys who, uh, aren't, you know, Heston, uh, I always say his name wrong. Jerstad, right? No, no. Kerstad. The J is silent. Kerstad, uh, doesn't fit either of their models because he's a high strikeout guy. So even though there's talent, neither of those teams would go there. Um, at top of that for the Indians, they tend to prefer left-handed hitters. Uh, if they're going to the prep ranks, they like their cold weather bats, uh, basically North of the old Mason Dixon line and just keep going. If you're looking for a, a hitter, Cleveland might take, uh, they, and then it, which is partially true. And then, South of the Mason Dixon, you're basically only places they tend to go then is Georgia, Florida, California, or Texas. They don't seem to, they just seem to skip the rest of the country. Uh, they are very Georgia heavy uh, the last few years, Espino and Ethan Hankins, both being Georgia kids in round one. So, so Jordan Walker is going to be the next Cleveland Indian. Yeah, that, he's, that's, yeah. <laughs> he's going to be my pick to them at the 36. In the comp round. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Sticking with the division, we skipped over a little bit. So, you know, the Royals are picking at four. They have a comp round pick, too. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Zach Veen for them. Do you do you think that's realistic for them at four, or do you think they might take, you know, the college bat and Gonzalez if he happens to be there? They are a hard team. Uh, I was uh, doing a Royals podcast last week, and I'm like, you guys just, I don't know what you guys are going to do. Uh, it's kind of all over the place with the Royals. After they took Bobby Witt, they did not take another – uh, college player until like the 20s, I want to say. I could be wrong. It's not as bad as the Rockies, who, or I'm sorry, didn't take another prep player until the 20s. It's not as bad as the Rockies, who didn't take a prep player until the somewhere in the, the 30th round. But they were, and over the past few years, they've been, the Royals have been very, very college heavy. So I could see them going Veen. I could also see, I mean, Dayton Moore, I think on one level, would uh, absolutely eat up Nick Gonzalez. I mean, he is this. Uh, grindery guy who stayed close to home uh, to play at New Mexico because it was close to his family and has just outworked everyone. And uh, when you think about all the things Dayton Moore talks about, it, I, I just think he is a, a guy who more personally would love the story on. But they, when even when you go back to their the players that built that last core that won the World Series, it was the successful picks were the prep players early. So I think Bean does make a lot of sense. I think. Gonzalez could make a lot of sense. I am curious to see what they will come back and do with those later selections. And the other thing with the Royals is just to keep in mind that they don't draft pitchers smaller than six foot four. So that eliminates a lot of those guys. Like when you look at Chris McMahon and CJ Van Eyck and Tanner Burns and kind of that third tier of college arms, it is a lot of guys who are in that, what are considered undersized right-handers. And that's a big, strong group. But it, when you pull all those guys out, because the Royals don't go for guys under six four it makes that next third tier in the second round a lot harder. You're picking a, a lot more slim pickings. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they do decide to go arm, where they go and how they go about it. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really good point for them. And I remember two years ago, what they had they had five picks with all those comp picks, right? They had they had like five picks in the top fifty or whatever, and everybody thought they were going to go super prep heavy, and they took like five college pitchers. So yeah, it, it was, you know, it was like a little bit crazy. So wrapping up the division here before we get into some more White Sox stuff and general stuff. I know the Twins are picking super late, but do you have any thoughts on them in the first round? Uh, looking at their historical data, they've been all about power. Um, I mean, outside of the Royce Lewis pick, it's like Matt Walner. Their second round pick is a big bodied, big power guy. Keone Kavaka from last year, power. Um, Trevor Larnock was a power bat. Uh, the same year they took Lewis was Brent Rooker. So I'd be looking for a, a power hitter. I think there's going to be some interesting prep bats there with power potential. I don't know if they'll be the, uh, the college hitter, but uh, I think if there's a college hitter, if an Austin Wells is on the board, he could make sense there. I also think if there is... You know, they could be someone who looks at Jordan Walker, and it is a, a foul V came from the Indians. They are part Indians and then part Rangers, I believe, for their kind of makeup on stuff. And the Rangers for a long time love Georgia as well. So I think looking at a power bat would be the most likely selection for the Twins. Really good stuff there on the Twins, Jeff. Not sure who really cares about the Twins, but no, I'm just kidding. All right, so let's talk White Sox. I want to move on because... This is such an interesting top 10, I feel like. And I don't know where the White Sox are going to go at 11. Multiple options for them. Do they want to go college? Do they want to go prep? Do they want to stay with, or excuse me, they want to go with Ed Howard, the position player, the local kid at Mount Carmel. That's somebody that we're highlighting as well. I mean, there are college arms who we are anticipating possibly to fall. Should that happen, I think the White Sox would do well in, in attacking that sort of field. But we just don't know. What are your thoughts so far here on the White Sox? It's kind of an unfortunate place to fall because to me, there's like a nine player group in this class and then a bit of a fall off. Now there's a chance one of those nine will be there at 11 uh, because, as you said, I think there's a chance one of the pitchers could slide down a bit. Uh, I agree that I think if you're going to go prep there, Ed Howard is 12th on my board. I know some people are not as high on him, but, uh, you know, it's it, when you look at the he's a no doubt shortstop, I think he could have plus power potential. I know that's not uh, the universally held theme, but that's that's my belief in looking at like the physicality and some of the raw numbers he has now. Uh, I, and, you know, like there's no red flag. Everything I hear is just fantastic kid which is what you want at shortstop because it is such a, a demanding position so i don't know if they'd go prep i mean again i use past history so much i mean that pick for me is going to be a college player when i make the mock if they did decide to go prep i wouldn't necessarily be shocked i would just be like okay so now i can start changing my thought process and how they go about it um i've always been you know that patrick bailey has been a, a common name there um i thought that Dylan Dingler is an underslot guy, could make some sense. Um, that got me some not so favorite things from people, but the whole idea more being that like you go massively underslot and then like a year ago they went with the college hitter and then they went back to back prep arms around two and three, including some guys who uh, had some ceilings. So I could almost see in some regards, I don't think just the White Sox, but I think other teams are going to be tempted to uh, maybe reach a little bit on a college bat, get some monetary savings, and then you can come back in round two. And, you know, is it Justin Lang who you roll the dice on? Is it uh, how far does Jared Kelly fall? Uh, could be one of the the bats uh, from the, the high school ranks if a Jordan Walker slides or someone like that. I think 
the White Sox are kind of in this interesting position where I don't know how much they can know or how set in stone they can really feel in anything uh, ahead of them. It's uh, the people feel pretty good. It sounds like up until about the angels pick and then the angels are being cagey. Um, when I talked to someone who talked to someone with the angels, uh, they were in on a lot of the arms, but they also like some of the prep talents that'll be interesting to see. Like I said, just based on models, I'm going to have a college talent there, but I don't think it's shocking if they go the other way. I think it's just, um, them changing or them stepping outside of what they've done and just how they evaluate or judge things. So it's very interesting to see. So should the White Sox decide on that philosophy where they want to go under slot and then they invest in the second, third, fourth rounds on, on what we assume to be pitching? Because what a lot of these experts are telling us is that it's, it's filled with pitching depth across the five rounds this year. Do you think that's the right move for a franchise like the White Sox in this situation? Or do you believe that, hey, just take just take a valuable, you know, advanced player at this stage in, in round one, pay him the bonus slot, and play the field the rest of the way? I would normally say, you know, B. But I feel like in this class, um, when you get to 11, I'm not feeling quite as confident in the the safe uh, talent or player. There's the the college pitchers in that group uh, have a lot of guys who are yet to, you know, Garrett Groshe's first two years at Tennessee, he got hit really hard. Then he started throwing a hundred and then he didn't play because of elbow problems. Like that scares me. Like he is that guy where I'm going to let someone else take him. I understand I could be wrong and he could turn into a Cy Young winner, but I'm concerned by that. Uh, when you look at some of the other names, like if you're looking at kind of the, the college arms, it, you know, Cole Wilcox is the virtually the same pitcher he was two years ago. He did not uh, develop at Georgia. The, the, he could be fantastic. He could be uh, a quad A guy. Bryce Jarvis is probably your safest arm who's kind of in that range, uh, just because he has had a long history of success. And while his uptick in velocity uh, and made his fastball better. He's always had good secondary offerings. Um, Cade Cavalli, the other player that gets talked about, uh, he struggled with health and he struggled with command, but he has a super clean delivery. Now, normally the first thing when I see a guy struggling with his command is, well, let's clean up the delivery. I, I don't know how you're going to clean up uh, Cavalli's delivery. Like, how do you fix command problems when it's not based in, well, he's not repeating this or the delivery's got a hitch? That's typically the go to. So, I feel that kind of the tier of guys that are in that area, if you're looking at college arms, uh, is not quite as inspiring. And if you can look at, you know, one of the college bats, Garrett Mitchell is like, just like Cole Wilcox, he's the same bag of tools he was three years ago. Um, Justin Foscu is is rising. Patrick Bailey is again, the proven guy. Dillinger is, Dillinger, Dingler, since he's been a high schooler, when I was in Ohio, I've been wanting to call him Dillinger instead of mm-hmm. Dingler. I don't some names. I just do that too. But uh, again, he's far from proven, and he's had uh, injury history. Uh, I am a big fan overall in the ceiling, but I think they're in a situation where if they feel like there's a talent that's a little bit lower on your board and you like him, uh, why not grab that guy? You know, if it is Patrick Bailey or if it's Dingler or if it's even as I just moved down the list, my own personal list in front of me right now. Aaron Sabato or someone like that. It's like, if you save a lot there, there's a chance you could come back and get someone like Tanner Witt in round two, who I have like as a 
a top 30 talent. Uh, it, it's the equivalent of the trade down, right? So you can't trade in the MLB draft. So instead of doing the trade down where there's no one who you quite love, you're going to overdraft someone and underpay them. So then at 30 or not 30, uh, that's Tanner Witt was ranked 30 on my board. That's why I had that number. But so when they come back in the second round, they're essentially getting a, a borderline first round talent. That's the equivalency of the trade down with the MLB draft is, is the saving of pool money and then swinging back around to, to get someone. And with the draft this deep, I think that in some respects, that's uh, makes a ton of sense. If, you know, even if someone like Witt's gone, Carson Montgomery could be there, Justin Lang, there's some really interesting uh, prep pitchers or, you know, Kevin uh, Parada, the really toolsy catcher they could consider. There's, there's a lot of ways to go. And I think for me, for the first time ever, I'm going to say, I like that approach more than just taking the top guy on your board. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Who do you do? You, are you willing to say? You know, did you have a pick that the White Sox uh, at, at eleven? Do you think the White Sox do get a, an Ed Howard here? That's who I'm rooting for. I, I would love the Howard pick for them uh, in general. Uh, I think it's again. I think he's being he's kind of all over the place, and I, I I don't quite get that. I think he's a no doubt shortstop who. Uh, yeah, he needs some development, but we see that in a lot of kids. Uh, like I said, to me, that's a strong selection. Uh, I, I would, in any mock, I, I mean, I would just be putting them with a top college talent that makes sense just because that is what they've done. And um, especially at this time of year, every 90% of what people want to tell me is a lie. So the one thing that doesn't lie is historical data. So I can just pull up that list and see what tendencies are. And I know there are changes at the top, but... Uh, it's the same thing with the Angels. Until they drafted Joe Adele, I was never going to give them a prep talent in the first round in a mock. And then they took Joe Adele, and now um, I consider it. So it's just seeing the White Sox kind of break um, since, you know, the, the infamous Courtney Hawkins pick. Uh, 2012, was that? Am I it, wrong in my yeah, mind? Yeah, 2012, yeah. So since the, the Hawkins pick, uh, we've just seen that run of safety. Uh, I did get fooled one year where I, I had a reliable rumor that they were going to take Gavin Lux. So I changed that last second and I was wrong. Sorry to tell that to White Sox fans at this point in time, all these years later, <laughs> that ended up being Zach Collins instead. But uh, we'll have to, to see what they do. I, I think I agree with you guys. Howard would be a fantastic pick. Uh, it would be a, a change for them. They're just kind of in this weird no man's land of there's, you know, I, I'm not quite as high on Robert Hassel. I mean, I haven't been at 11. You know, other people have been at five. It's all relative. But uh, there seems to be this very kind of solidified 10 names. So who's going to be next? Like who who, uh, who ends up sliding to the that range after those kind of first 10 names? And that's what's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, this has been, you know, a storyline that we've followed, right? Because the White Sox are supposedly more interested in prep players. You and I have debated it. And, you know, I completely understand just like putting college player A in there for them. I know for a fact that they're, you know, they've talked to all these high school guys and they're more willing to do it. Now, you know, would they prefer Reed Detmers falls to them and they just take him and, you know, stay on that safe path? Yeah, I think they would. But I think there is a scenario where, you know, those college guys are gone. We've talked about the college bats a little bit. You know, you might be in a scenario there where, where a high school player is like the best player on the board. So it's tough for me to – I don't really like the second tier, like, college hitting class as much as, like, most years. And especially, like, you know, they're not really going to be playing much minor league baseball this year. 
And and one thing that we've seen, like the perception of safe, and and it's obviously just one example with Jake Berger, but I mean any any uh, you know pitfalls at all, and you're looking at a college guy that's like 24, 25 before they debut. So um, I I do think some of the mocks have mentioned. Like, you know, all oh, the White Sox are linked to all these high school guys, and then they still put a college player in there. So th- that'll be that'll be one of the interesting storylines for us, you know, to follow Wednesday night. Yeah, it's in the, it's kind of a similar story, honestly, with the Rockies, who are ahead of them as well, uh, where it's, you know, I, I think I mentioned already that they took 30 straight college players a year ago and have been very college-heavy, but everything, every rumor on them is prep player. So it's, yeah, it's, they're yeah they're tied to Robert Hassel a little bit yeah. there. Yeah. So it's like nine and eleven are both these things where we're hearing a lot of prep names, um, but then inevitably we go with the college performer. And again, the White Sox are just in this weird position of like we know who the ten names are, but a surprise can come through. Like until yeah. draft day, nobody thought Josh Young was going in the top ten last year. Like he was a a late first round talent, you know, long track record, but. That was a surprise. So we'll have to see. It takes one guy like that, and all of a sudden there's a, a talent sitting there at 11, the White Sox morning squack thing. Yeah, and, and Baseball America just came up with their update while we were while we were on the podcast, and they have they have McAble to the White Sox at 11, which I would be pretty shocked by, but I would I would welcome it for sure. One, one question I have for you related to some of the strategical stuff that you were talking about, like trying to go with a high school arm in round two. One of the guys I heard as a potential option for them at 47 is Jared Jones out of uh, La Merida in California. What can you tell us about him? Uh, there's some Matthew Thompson in him. Uh, Thompson was a second rounder last year, right? I'm not yeah. going crazy in my head. Uh, the names start to, to go together. Uh, he was originally a USC commit. Uh, USC's coach got fired, so he then committed to Texas. Uh, USC has been a, a dead zone for college talent for so long, so I can't blame him for, for changing a commit. But uh, Athletic, I believe his dad played in the minors as well. Uh, big, easy fastball. I think he's already 19, so uh, I want to say that was one of the dings in my head. Not the biggest guy, but kind of, you know, like how Thompson was last year. It's like that easy velocity, good athleticism, really can just fling it. You, you have the base tool there to be, uh, no worse than a mid-rotation starter. So then it's just trusting the team's ability to develop, work on the secondary pitches, work on, um, you know, the repetition and consistency and say what you want to say about the White Sox. But outside of uh, Carson Fulmer, who we'll just kind of forget about because we all missed on him, I feel like they've done a pretty good job when it comes to pitcher development. And when you look at the big arms they've had success with, it's like, I mean, Giolito uh, was almost a secondary piece in some people's eyes in that deal, and they got him straight and figured out, and now he looks like a potential top 10 arm. We'll see what happens when Kopech comes back. Some of these other guys, they've had a lot of success with big velocity, and they've been able to help these types of pitchers figure it out. So I think uh, he makes sense. He fits that kind of mold like the other guys, and he could be a a pricey get. So if they did save money, that could be a, a place to spend it. But he does fit what we've seen them have success with and what we have seen them target. So obviously, I mean, you know, it's a five-round draft. Um, mock, mock drafts are never completely accurate, obviously, and there's always, you know, some changes once we actually watch the event. But are you expecting any big surprises on Wednesday night, and what storylines are the ones that you're most interested in following? I think we will see um, some very unusual things. I think there's 
like I said, I can see um, teams going, uh, how can I put this nicely? I could see teams skipping out on the draft. And what I mean by that is taking lesser talent with every pick and then not using their entire pool. Um, normally we don't, you know, teams take this seriously. Um, though I can remember in my childhood, I think it was when Michael Tucker signed with the Giants was specifically mentioned as, hey, now we don't have to pay a first round pick. That thought process doesn't exist anymore. But there were teams who had owners who didn't want to draft at all. They didn't want to expend the $100,000 would cost for five picks because every player is only getting a $20,000 signing bonus. And then I should know this, but I can't remember. It's either they're going to get half at next year's draft or they'll get half at the end of the season. I think it's next year's draft. So it's not a big cash expenditure, but there are some owners who didn't want this to occur at all. So I wouldn't be shocked if like, you know, Oakland, who there's been a lot of talk about which college bat are they going to take? I think I've had Nick Lofton there all along. What happens if they end up taking someone like London Knack or London Landon Knack who's the 23 year old uh, retreat senior and give him like 400,000 and then come back in the second round and take another guy around that level. Like not necessarily taking um, senior signs and really saving money, but I wouldn't be shocked if a team ends up spending like total bonuses, something around like two, 3 million total. If there are owners who are just like, no, we're not investing this year. I mean, the Angels sent home their scouting staff uh, a week ago. So they're not even, they're all furloughed right now. They're not even bothering to scout the week ahead of the draft. It's its a weird environment. Um, you know, and I bring up the A's just because they were the cheapskates and the, the paying their minor leaguers. I don't know if they're necessarily one of the teams that didn't want the draft. I don't have any inside info on that. But again, I would not be shocked if we saw or a team that went out and used their first round pick and then their next four picks were all just senior, uh, you know, interesting arms who do some things well or interesting bats, but aren't overall talent. That would be the kind of surprise I would expect in the draft this year. Boy, what a time. What a time to be a Major League Baseball fan. That all sounds very encouraging. Uh, (laughs) Jeff, really awesome stuff, man. You are locked into the Major League Baseball draft. We are looking forward to it on June 10th. This week, man, we've been prepping for a while. It's really the only thing that we've been following. Uh, for quite a bit outside of these negotiations. One of the aspects that we haven't touched on, and maybe maybe one or two more and we'll let you go, is the undrafted aspect about this, the, the $20,000 attached to an unlimited amount of undrafted free agent signings. What does this mean for the players? What kind of impact does this play into in organizations as well as these players' careers uh, considering they're, they're only going to get slotted $20,000? You know, when it was first announced, I wrote a whole piece about how I expected more players to, you know, for lack of a better description, pull a Carter Stewart and end up over in Japan. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. And I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen uh, some Japanese teams be a little more aggressive. I mean, if you're Spencer Torkelson, maybe you could get like four or five million now if you went to Japan and signed a three-year contract. And when you came back, you uh, would you be a free, you know, it's, it's, there's ways that this could be used for teams and for players. Uh, It it is unfortunate because what's going to happen with the $20,000 and that offer is there's going to be a lot of guys who typically on day three of the draft got, you know, a hundred thousand, 110, 120, or even got like 40 or 50,000 who are now going to get offered 10 or 20,000. Like teams don't have to offer 20,000 to everyone and they won't. 
and they'll try to undercut and save money and because they're going to have limited budgets. Uh, owners aren't going to allow uh, you to go out and sign a million dollars worth of these guys, even though it's a great discounted rate and it's a chance to really uh, steal some talent. And to me, the really unfortunate thing is the the talented players who should go to college, um, who are also the ones who have are in the worst financial situations are the ones who will be most taken advantage of. Um, 20000 isn't a ton of money, but like, I know when uh, my day job is a teacher and when I, my first job working in a low income district to get personal information uh, with a master's degree was, you know, it was under 40,000. So it's like 20,000 is still a good chunk of money. If you are a kid whose family has come from a situation where they don't have, so it's going to be, it, it almost feels a little bit exploitative to me in that regard. And I do worry about that. And I feel bad for for those players where, you know, there, there are players who are probably counting on getting, I'm going to get $100,000. That's going to be huge for my family. You know, they would already had that in their mind. Maybe they didn't take high school as seriously as they should have. And yes, that is partially on them. But at the same time, I think all of us have had a job. We know we're going to quit and we kind of mail it in. We've all been in similar situations. And I just, I feel bad for those kids. I feel bad for these players and it does feel a little unfair at this point in time. And next year with college baseball, it's like no one loses eligibility. So where are players going to go? There's just not the spots. There's not going to be the readily available starting positions, rotations. Does that mean smaller programs uh, will all of a sudden be a great place to land possibly like in an ideal world, all of a sudden, you know, the big 10 becomes a, a fantastic program and that's a bunch of talent, but we'll have to see. I'm, I, I, I hate the way this draft ended up, I'll be honest. And I, I 